I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes Podcast. Today, I've got two great features and a very sad loss. Bassist Eric Scott left the planet this past week. First up is an interview with the Icelandic ambient chamber music group Hugar. Their album Vartha was the Echoes CD of the month in September. Their music is inspired by their homeland. It's just who we are, it's who we raised to be, you know, we raised in this environment with all these things that are different from everywhere else and I guess we're just writing music from the influences we have closest to us. That's Hugar, we'll be talking to them later on, then we're going to hear a flashback 50 to King Crimson's In the Court of the Crimson King. This monumentally influential album was released on October 10th, 1969, and it still resonates throughout music today. We'll go inside this recording and hear comments from King Crimson and Yes drummer Bill Bruford, electronic artist Bonco de Gaia, and Crimson founder, guitarist Robert Fripp, who had a simple plan for the group. It was, if only the feel of Hendrix, if only the vocabulary was a little more sophisticated, if only... Bartok was on guitar, with the Marshall stack and the power turned up on 11. King Crimson's in the court of the Crimson King in a flashback 50. Then we remember Eric Scott. The bassist and composer played in bands like Alice Cooper, Flo and Eddie, and Sonia Dada, but we knew him on Echoes from his atmospheric instrumentals centered by his soulful, string-bending bass melodies. Eric left the planet on October 11th at the age of 71. That's all ahead, but before we get to that, I want to let you know that we're celebrating Echo's 30th anniversary. We've been bringing you chilled music and great interviews like all of these for three decades now. Drop by echoes.org on the donations page and make a contribution to Echo's right now. And for a limited time, a $30 donation gets you a limited edition Echo's 30th anniversary t-shirt, which looks very cool. It's black with blue lettering and the Echo's logo. Go to echoes.org for it right now. Okay, let's start. Get ready for the chill of Hugar. Iceland is ground zero for ambient chamber music. Sigur Rós, Olafur Arnold, Hilmar Orn Hilmerson, and the late Johan Johansson all come from the island nation. Hugar, relatively speaking, are from the second generation of artists exploring this meaning of ambient classical and post-rock sounds. Their album Vatha was Echo's CD of the month in September, and they played live on the show. After this session, I followed the Vatha of Hugar. It's a journalistic cliché when writing about Scandinavian artists to talk about how their music evokes the glaciers, fjords, and frozen landscapes of their countries. But in the case of Hugar, that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah, we decided, you know, it's it's just who we are. It's who we raised to be, you know. We raised in this environment with all these things that are different from everywhere else. And I guess we just writing music from the influences we have closest to us. Those influences begin with the title Hrvatha. These are stone cairns scattered throughout Iceland that mark pathways across the island. 
Yeah, there are these uh, stone, like piles of stones that you, that you can find on these hiking paths that guides you where you're supposed to be headed, you know, and because they so, couldn't rely on the stars because we have <laughs> no yeah, stars in the, in the summertime. In the summer we have, you know, sun out all, all day. It was kind of the concept of the album, you know, it's uh, rather much more about the journey itself rather than the destination, so this ongoing journey. is keyboardist Berger Thorsen and guitarist Peter Jonsson. The two have known each other since they were children in kindergarten. Thorsen started playing music as a trombonist. Uh, I'm originally a trombone player actually, but then I basically just play trumpet, tuba, euphonium, whatever. Berger Thorsen dropped the trombone in favor of electronic keyboards and computers. I was actually going to study here in the US trombone and, and then I got in and to school and then I realized like geez do I want to be a trombone player for the rest of my life and I had already been working in studios a bit and I decided not to go I went back to Iceland that's kind of when I when I started working with Olaf Arnolds and that got me into more electronics and studio work and that kind of stuff. But the trombone, as well as other brass instruments, are a distinctive part of Hugar's sound as Thorson creates brass orchestras in their ambient compositions. Peter Jonsson started more traditionally as well. Originally I started as a classical guitar player. Peter Jonsson plugged in his guitar and was seduced by the world of signal processing on his instrument. You know, pedals and stuff, trying to make the guitar not sound like a guitar in a way, you know. I guess it's just really fascinating to turn patterns and make something blink and hear something weird, you know. It kind of transforms you into a Another dimension, if you can say it. <laughs> Thorson and Jonsson got involved in the Icelandic music scene playing in fusion, experimental, and post-rock bands. They are young musicians, smack in their mid-twenties, who, despite that age, have built up some serious music credentials. Birger Thorson. I mean, I used to work with Olaf Arnolds for three or four years and tour with him in the world, and I've been recording with, with people like Olaver or Sigros and Björk and, and more. In case you didn't catch those names, he said. Olafur Arnolds, Sigur Rós, and Bjork. That looks pretty good on a resume. He turned me 
Thorson has been on Bjork's recent albums, including Utopia, and he's currently working on her next release. But all the while, they began developing their own music, which emerged in 2014 on their self-titled debut. That self-titled debut was impressive enough that Bjork's management got them signed to a record deal with the Sony Masterworks label, and that led to their latest album, Vatha. It's a tone poem of Icelandic sights and not the big ones, but the everyday sights. The album opens with a track named Grandi or Harbor, which is where the duo live, and there's another called Half or Sea, which surrounds them. I mean, both of us grew up seeing the ocean every single day, every single morning when we woke up, you know, it's the first thing we saw on our way to school or whatever. So I think it, it definitely has a has a big effect and it's almost like a living creature, you know. You can hear a lot of influences on Hugar from Olafur Arnold's They Take the Sound of the Creaky Piano. The magic behind that sound is basically just the piano we have and the chair we have and the, you know, the magic of the first take. It's an interesting effect in Hugar's music, which is so 21st century in its sounds, yet the melodies have a wistfulness to them, and the creaky piano lends a note of nostalgia. It's kind of this, like, idea of a memory you have in back of your head, you know, you can remember a memory from when you, of your childhood as a scene from a movie or whatever. So, like, maybe that's kind of part of where the inspiration is drawn, you know these songs is like maybe fat list that uh, you're going through your grandmother's attic or something and everybody everything's creaking and you're going through old photos or something you know that's might be something that popped into your head but and it's also you know it has to also do with the piano sounds you mentioned it's we just like it because it's you can kind of visualize what's going on you know there's a creaky chair and there's a old piano and it's not perfectly in tune or whatever but that's kind of very real in a way Nostalgic as they might be, that feeling is tempered by post-rock influences. It's kind of, you know, um, like the Icelandic stuff, like Seros, you listen a lot to that, but also Godspeed and 
Explosion in the Sky and uh, Mogwai, for instance. Uh, I think also sound-wise for both of us, Radiohead was a yeah, Radiohead, big influence. Ugar's Vartha could evoke images of Icelandic frost fields, stormy weather, or open harbors in Reykjavik. That's the movie swirling in their heads. But put on the earphones, gaze out the window, and their music will soundtrack just about anything in your life. Yeah, I mean, I think we try to always have a, some sort of visualization going on in our heads, and that can be influenced by films we've seen or, or pictures or whatever, but because it's instrumental music, it's not something we necessarily want the audience to know. We want them to make their own picture. You can follow the path through Hugar's music on their latest album, Havatha. It's out on Sony Masterworks. You can get a hold of Hugar's Vatha at echoes.org. I'll have a link for you in the posting for this podcast. You can also read my Echoes CD of the Month review of that album. And now a flashback 50 to King Crimson's In the Court of the Crimson King. October 10th, 1969, King Crimson released their debut album in the court of the Crimson King, and rock music was never the same. We look back at this masterpiece in a flashback 50. Uh, there was nothing like it. I mean, when I first heard it, there was nothing to compare it to. It was its own thing. You know, Greg Lake's voice, Robert Fripp's guitar. Yeah, you know, well, I think pretty much, I could, I could actually could have done the whole album because I think all of it would have sounded amazing on the cello. They, they were thinking very orchestral. Yes, considered King Crimson hipper at the time. I also preferred King Crimson. I thought the sound of the group was much filthier, much more grown up, much more X-rated. Yeah. 
As the psychedelic era crested in 1969, a new sound emerged in England, progressive rock. Groups like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Genesis, Yes, and Gentle Giant brought a new sound to rock that drew from classical music more than the blues. It was presaged by bands like the Moody Blues, the Nice with Keith Emerson, and East of Eden, who was first codified by King Crimson with their debut album in the court of the Crimson King. Guitarist Robert Fripp was the instigator of King Crimson. At the dawn of the psychedelic scene in England in the late 60s, Fripp was nowhere near the underground except to ride it. He was studying economics to become an estate manager in his father's real estate firm. But he also played guitar and performed like jazz of the day at the Majestic Hotel in Bournemouth. I can say categorically I knew that mitzvahs and weddings was not my scene. Robert Fripp, speaking to me in 1986 at his guitar craft course in West Virginia. While I was at the Majestic, I was at college um, studying economics, economic history and political history on my way to university to take a degree in estate management. But it changed, you see, it changed one night driving home from the Majestic. This was now probably February 1967, something like that, when I came in late it was probably half past one in the morning and on the radio I heard Sergeant Pepper and I didn't know what it was then at the end was this enormous wind up of a day in the life and it terrified me oh what on earth is going on with this I hadn't been listening to, to much music outside Ben Mitzvah's Harvey Nagila and the rest of it because I was studying phenomenally hard. So I wasn't really in touch with what was happening. And then, here was Sergeant Pepper. Oh! And then shortly afterwards, um, Clapton with the male blues breakers. Then Hendrix, how you experienced Purple Haze. Then the Bartok String Quartets. Rite of Spring. Oh, it was too much. How could I say no to this? So I dropped everything and knew I was, this was for me. I had to be a professional player. I had to, I had to follow this. He formed a group with the brothers Peter and Michael Giles and released an idiosyncratic pop album called The Cheerful Insanity of Giles, Giles and Fripp in 1968. The breeze makes the trees Fripp's assessment of this time is dyspeptic. So it went to London with the Giles brothers to an entirely mediocre career. Two years, misery failure, unemployment, ignominy, 
poverty, insults, humiliation. Shortly after, he took drummer Michael Giles and the group's saxophonist and keyboardist Ian McDonald, added college friend Greg Lake on vocals and bass, and lyricist Pete Sinfield. He had started out as a roadie, became their lyricist and set designer. The initial concept was a marriage of Fripp's favorite music. It was, if only the feel of Hendrix, if only the vocabulary was a little more sophisticated, and if only Bartok was on guitar with the Marshall stack and the power turned up on 11. Nowhere was that embodied more than the album's opening track, 21st Century Schizoid Man. First Century Schizoid Man was a dystopian scream into the abyss with Greg Lake's distorted vocals singing the end of the world lyrics from Pete Sinfield. Its original conception was as an anti-war song. Fripp's guitar snarled out the distorted chords like bombs and launched sinewy sustained lines across Ian McDonald's saxophone riffing. Guitarist Tim Motzer was overwhelmed by it as a teenager in the early 1970s. Uh, it was very challenging. I found all those early King Crimson records like disturbing. They were very hard to to listen to, and they made me depressed sometimes. I think even, but but also elated because you know there's a lot of dissonance in that music. But. Um, King Crimson is, there's a lot to talk there. The cover of the album reflected the nightmarish, fantastical aspect of the music. Painted by Peter Godber, the outside cover featured The Schizoid Man. It was like a close-up rendering of Edvard Munch's The Scream, done in lurid, psychedelic red and blue hues. Inside the gatefold was the moon-faced Crimson King, looking both evil, friendly, and sad at the same time. That was the image for the title track of the epic the court of the Crimson King. Rusted chains of prison moons are shattered by the sun. I walk a road, horizons change, the tournament's begun. The purple piper plays his tune, the choir softly sing. Lullabies in an ancient tongue For the court of the crimson The dominant sound of the title track of In the Court of the Crimson King was the Mellotron had been around for a few years, used by the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Zombies, and many more. But the Mellotron reached its zenith in King Crimson and progressive rock. 
Toby Marks of the electronic band Banco de Gaia. And Mellotron is one of the most wonderful instruments ever made and was effectively the first sampler, except that it used tape loops instead of electronics. And being a sucker for Genesis and Pink Floyd and King Crimson and all that, I'd grown up with the sound of Mellotron choirs and strings and flutes. And so I was, I really want to use this, I really want to use the string sound. The Mellotron was initially used to imitate or even replace real instruments and players, but bands like King Crimson revealed how its real appeal lay and how atmospheric, smoky, and ethereal it could be in its own right. There was a gentler side to King Crimson, one dominated by multi-track flute and mellotron choirs, acoustic guitar, and Pete Sinfield's fantasy lyrics. It resulted in some of progressive rock's most beautiful ballads, songs like Cadence and Cascade and I Talk to the Wind. It could be argued that King Crimson also launched symphonic rock and that appealed to classical musicians like Maya Beiser. On her 2014 album Uncovered, she plays King Crimson's epic Epitaph. I love Epitaph. It's it's just a, f- a great song. And I also, you know, it's an anti-violence, anti-war um, song. And it felt very timely for me to record it. King Crimson was a surprising success in 1969. I remember the Beatles' George Harrison singing their praises on a Los Angeles radio interview. And they opened for the Rolling Stones in their infamous Hyde Park performance in 69, following the death of their founder, Brian Jones. Drummer Bill Bruford was among those who heard them. He was already in the progressive band, Yes. And I also thought Yes was a very lightweight group. But somehow, Crimson was the hipper. Was no, in England, too, that we all considered in England that it was the hipper at the time. And I always wanted to be in King Crimson. A few years after King Crimson's debut, Fripp invited Bruford into his new edition of the band. <laughs> King 
King Crimson's and the Court of the Crimson King went to number five in Britain and 28 in the U.S., but its impact has been even more profound through the years, influencing artists like Tool, Rush, and countless progressive metal bands and post-progressive rock groups from Sigaros to Explosions in the Sky and Radiohead. In the end, Fripp attained all his goals in King Crimson's debut. There was a viscerality about standing in front of a a wall of Marshalls and Les Pauls and thrashing Fender basses that it didn't speak directly to the intellect. Why not? And yet in a chamber ensemble, quite wonderful of course, but it hasn't got me by my nuts. Why not? So for me it was a question of how could you bring the two together. Crimson in 69 was one approach if you like to draw on the vocabulary of the Western tonal harmonic tradition with the power of the Afro-American musical tradition known as rock and roll. This edition of King Crimson dissolved by the end of their second album, after which Greg Lake joined Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Ian McDonald and Michael Giles went on to record as McDonald and Giles, and then McDonald co-founded Foreigner. Michael Giles went on to become a session musician and also played in the tribute group 21st Century Schizoid Band. And Pete Sinfield went on to produce Roxy Music, PFM, and other artists and wrote lyrics for many of them. His lyrics have been recorded by artists as diverse as Bucks Fizz and Celine Dion. He also recorded a pretty solo album, Still. And Robert Fripp, his projects are too vast to list, but among them, he still leads King Crimson deep into the 21st century. The legend of In the Court of the Crimson King continues five decades on in a flashback 50. That album still sounds amazing 50 years later, and if you get a chance to catch the latest edition of King Crimson on tour, do not miss it. They are as intense and immaculate now as 50 years ago. I've got a review of their latest concert tour up on the Echoes website. I have a link for you in the posting for this podcast. And now, some sad news. Bassist Eric Scott has left the planet. He was a beautiful and soulful bassist with a great sense of the melodic possibilities of the instrument without ever forgetting the bottom groove. I came to know Eric really well over the last decade, and his absence leaves a big hole in the Echo's landscape. Last year, we featured Eric in an interview, and I took that opportunity to dig back into his career. Up until 2009, I didn't know anything about Eric Scott. I knew the last group he was in, Sonia Dada, and I knew bands he was in in the 70s and 80s like Flo and Eddie and Alice Cooper. But I really had no idea about him. So when a friend of Scott's told him to send me a copy of the demos for his solo debut album, I may not have given it the attention it deserved. He suggested to send it to John Diliberto, who's got this, you know, non-mainstream, he's got this eclectic music, uh, and so that's when I sent you the record, and it was not quite done. And you went, nah. 
I did not. Did I? <laughs> yeah, at first you did. You said it's not what my audience would want to hear because it had too much drums, I think, at times and things like that. And I think at the time, 2000, this was 2008, maybe Echoes was a little softer. I don't know. Since then, Eric Scott has been a staple of Echoes. That debut of The Planets was an Echoes CD of the month, as was his fourth album, In the Company of Clouds. Now he's released a fifth recording, A Trick of the Wind, another album full of deep moods and deep bass melodies. But there is still a lot about Eric Scott that people may not know. Now at 70 years of age, this child of the 60s made his first record all the way back in 1969 with a psychedelic band called Food. Another child has woken They did one album, Forever is a Dream, with a cover featuring a surprisingly preppy-looking quartet of long hairs. I was young, so I was trying to look cool, and so I had that bit of a mustache, and uh, I wore that scarf, and, and you know, we kind of dressed up for the, for the photo, looking, and I had the caramel-looking coat. We were stoned. We had smoked a joint before the photo shoot, and we were all in the, out on this little thing in an abbey. Or was there a monastery in Mundelein, Illinois? And uh, that's why we're laughing so hard. <laughs> we're, we're blind. Your manner underlies your dream. The soul appears to make no seem. From the short lived food, Scott started a band called Otis Plum. And me and the guitar player decided that we were going to rock because food didn't rock hard enough. They didn't record, but they evolved into another group called Jambalaya, which did rock. A move to L.A. put Eric Scott in touch with a different kind of rock world. First, with Flo and Eddie, who were the two singers from the 1960s hit machine, The Turtles, Mark Volman and Howard Kalin. Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight. So happy together. Coming off a stint with the Mothers of Invention, their brand of rock was more satirical. Everybody was Kung Fu Fight! Boy, that song really sucks. Flo and A were well-loved in the industry, and um, artists especially in New York and L.A., would come to see him. I mean, the first night we had the tuba, there was Linda Ronstadt and, and James Taylor and Peter Asher and all those people singing Christmas carols because it was Christmas Eve. And the next night, Alice Cooper and Keith Moon came on stage. And that's how I first met Alice. We did uh, Happy Together and Wooly Bully, I think it was. Alice Cooper was a different world. Well, you know, it was the big rock show. I remember thinking it's the circus, because you'd come to a, a town on the radio, there's, you know, Alice Cooper's coming in. You'd hear that 
and you know you know that they'd been hearing this for three weeks in whatever town you come to and so here you are and you're the circus so that was a little new to me in that area it was special forces type of an era and we uh, dressed in paramilitary mercenary gear and the stage scene looked a little bit like a cross between maybe the alley scene in West Side Story and the end of the river scene in Apocalypse Now. It, you could kind of hide behind the, the character that you, so you'd assume the character and then go out and play. Eric Scott's final stop in the rock world was the Chicago bass band Sonia Dada, who had a hit with the song, You Don't Treat Me No Good. By then, Eric Scott was hearing a different path that would take him to still another world. Instead of hanging with people like Alice Cooper, Keith Moon, Carl Palmer, Ted Nugent, and Kim Carnes, he found himself in the midst of Guru Joss, David Arkenstone, Will Ackerman, and Deuter. It's a different world. Uh, it's a different life. I mean, I had no idea what I was getting into. I just knew that I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I was approaching a certain age. I'd been doing the uh, popular commercial music for 40 years and so, and I just, uh, I knew that I wanted to make some more use of the bass than had been, that is generally allowed in uh, commercial records. The melodies that I would sing, or the events, sonic events even, I wanted to do them on the bass, and instead of hand, and thinking of them and handing them to a, or suggesting a guitar part or a drum thing. So I started doing that, and I didn't know where to take it. He's obviously figured that out with five albums, all but one of them entirely instrumental. Scott's sound is melancholy, driven by his bass melodies. Scott is tall and lanky with long, gray-streaked hair, a scraggly beard, and is often wearing tinted, wire-rimmed glasses. He's speaking from his home north of San Francisco. It's kind of in the woods on a hill. It's beautiful. It's ridiculous. It's kind of stupid. It's kind of why we moved or selected this particular cottage up on the hill in the Marin Woods. It's really nice. It's not the dark and dingy. and It's a view with lava lamps. It's here that Scott crafts his music, which might explain some of the wistful introspection in his sound. Take the composition, The Wind Sings a Strange Song, from his latest album, A Trick of the Wind. I was trying to develop an environment of loneliness, because I wanted to feel like a spaceman, alone in space. So I had these little outer space sounds and a little minor key stereo road electric piano that took you back possibly to the Pink Floyd days. And wind that would create this environment that set up the main melodic voice, which was the fretless bass telling its story, taking its journey.
That song led to other wind themes on the album. And that got me thinking about the environment and the function of wind in it. And wind is like an unseen force affecting events. The Invisible Wand, that song title, came from that idea that there's an unseen, invisible conductor directing events, controlling our actions, even sometimes. It's like when you're out and there's a, the hair, unexplicably the hairs on your arms raise up and you go, what was that? And it's just, it's a trick of the wind. Eric Scott's music is a bit like instrumental Pink Floyd, but with bass melodies. He often stretches that facile description, though, on songs like The Ghosts of Storyville, which features trumpeter Jeff Oster from the band Flow. Together, they create a reimagined New Orleans jazz age. New Orleans, just, you know, the birth of jazz, the, uh, the, the red light district, the rather uninhibited patrons, and the experimental, and the anything goes, no rules. And uh, new music was invented, possibly in that district, in that town, at the turn of the century. It was right there. And so it was a new age, literally. And so I thought, you know, that it would be a cool thing to bring those elements together and try to make a little thing that's a little different. Eric Scott insists he doesn't have a plan or agenda for his music. It's much bigger than that. I mean, I make this music because I have to. It's what brings me joy. It's what gives me a feeling of accomplishment. It's what makes my soul stop hurting and brings me peace, at least temporarily. Eric Scott brings a lot of soul and possibly some peace on his latest album, A Trick of the Wind. Eric Scott is gone at the age of 71 after losing his second battle with cancer. It's an incredible loss for us here at Echoes. Eric was a friend of the show. He donated to Echoes and was an online subscriber. His wife, Mickey, told me that she and Eric were listening to Echoes right up until the end. You never know the impact you'll have on someone's life or death. I'll have links to Eric's music on the posting for this podcast. Next week on the Echoes Podcast, we'll hear an interview with Natasha Khan of Bat for Lashes. I'm John DiLiberto. Thanks for dialing up the Echoes Podcast today. Don't forget to donate at echoes.org. That's echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S dot org, O-R-G. See you next week, tonight on the radio, somewhere in the country or online, right now on Echoes.